you're disgusting, you know? Those are the words that were spoken to me when I was 17 years old by my high school girlfriend. And in that moment, in that season of life, there was some sin in my life that had come to the light that I had tried to hide for a long time, and my sin was understandably, objectively destructive. But that night, when I was 17 years old, I was spoken a narrative to, about myself, about what I was, that I responded with, yeah, I know, I am disgusting. In, the, in that moment, I agreed to something. I, I assented to something and, took, and said something about myself. I embraced a narrative about myself that I was being told. And all of us are living in story. That we, as human beings, we are storied creatures. We are formed and we are shaped and given purpose by story. We don't know how, how life could even operate without story. That we're walking through life with a certain succession of events that is slowly teaching us who we are, what we are, and why we are here. It's informing our view of the future. Story and narrative is everything. And there are few narratives that are so gripping and therefore destructive because of its nature than shame. Shame is trying to tell you a story, trying to get you to buy into and agree to, like I did, something about what you are. Not just who you are, but what you are. And so we got to talk about shame. We got to talk about the narrative that it is selling us and that so often we agree to. So what, what is shame? Shame is the deeply held belief, almost conviction in our guts, that there is something fundamentally wrong with who and with what we are. Shame takes our experiences in life the ways that we've gone astray, the ways that we've been sinned against, and it tells us something about us and says there's something deeply wrong with you. It labels you as something. It turns your essence away from the dignity of being made in the image of God, let alone being redeemed in Jesus like we'll talk about. It takes that away and it makes the essence of who you are subhuman like that moment when I was 17. I was no longer a sinner in need of grace and in need of help. I was no longer someone who had indeed wronged another person, but I was something. And that something was disgusting. We all buy into the narrative of shame, this deeply held conviction that there is fundamentally at the core of who we are, the essence of, who, of what makes Joshua Searcy, Joshua Searcy. Shame is trying to tell me that that essence is disgusting, that that essence is gross. It makes us subhuman. That's what shame is. And it makes us subhuman by buying into a false narrative about the essence of who we are. But not only that, what, what else does shame do to us? Well, it's pretty clear it isolates us. You see, shame is telling us a narrative not just about ourselves, but with that and almost behind that, a narrative about how everyone else is viewing us. 
And so for me, again, we'll keep with this example. When I was 17 and bought into the lie that at my essence, what I am is disgusting, that completely changed the way that I felt like I needed to view relationships with other human beings. What person would want to have a meaningful relationship of depth with someone who is at their core disgusting? Shame isolates us because it changes the essence of who we are away from human beings made in the image of God, which makes us capable of relationship with other people. It isolates us. Not only that, shame makes us subhuman. Shame isolates us, but shame also perpetuates idolatry. And I think all of us know this, but I think we have a hard time really putting our finger on what it is about shame that makes it so such fertile ground for idolatry and sin to perpetuate. And here's what it is. If shame makes us subhuman, and if shame isolates, then in relationship with other people, relationships of vulnerability seem like they're no longer an option. And so because of that, rather than going into the realm of the unknown of vulnerable relationships where we feel afraid and at risk of being called something like disgusting, we run to what we think we can control. Because relationships of vulnerability feel completely up in the air and far too risky, we run to idolatry, things that we, make, we think we can control, and things that we think can assuage our, 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 our grieved and hurting hearts at our own shame. This is why people are workaholics. This is why people are constantly at the office, that there's this, there's this root of shame that uh, at least I can control this, that I, there's something wrong with me, there's something wrong about the essence of who I am, but at least I have work. It's far too risky to go home on time because there I have to enter into the realm of relationship. But at work, I can do what I'm good at and I can get praise from it. I can control it. It's no longer risky. Shame perpetuates idolatry by selling us this false narrative that the safest thing in the world is sin. And then after you've given into that, after you've bought into that lie, it perpetuates again. Shame doubles down and says, see, I knew you were just a sinner. I knew you were just this. Shame perpetuates idolatry, makes it feel like the safest option for us. And then on the other side of us taking that bait, we feel all the more shame. Shame makes us subhuman. Changes the essence of who we are. Shame isolates us. And because of those two factors, sin or shame perpetuates idolatry. So what can we do? How does the grace of God answer to our shame? You see, there is something in God that can answer this core fundamental belief about something being wrong with us, about us being subhuman. There's something in God that he has extended to us as human beings that can release us from this tyranny. And it's called grace. And listen, I know Christians understand the word grace, that, that we understand kind of the concept of it. But listen, friends, grace is the glory of God on display. That even in Ephesians 1, that, that Paul says that 
God has saved us. God has brought us to himself in order that we might see and behold and experience the glory of his grace. Paul makes the grace of God out to be the fundamental attribute of glory. It's what makes God beautiful to human beings, that God would be gracious. And so grace answers everything in the Christian life, and specifically this realm of shame. How does it do that? Well, first, the grace of God, the gospel of the grace of God, makes vulnerability a very safe option. We can walk into the realm of vulnerability with other human beings and with God because the gospel of grace has already shown us what we really are. It's done two things. The cross of Jesus Christ has already said the worst thing about me that can be said. The cross of Jesus has outed me as a sinner. The cross of Jesus Christ says that in order for me to be saved, it took the death of the Son of God. The gospel of grace says the worst thing about me, and it it outs me. What do I have to hide? It's already Jesus being crucified in public is as, as much of an outing as I need to see that I'm a sinner in need of grace. But also, the gospel of grace says the best thing about me. Not only did it take this, not, not only categorically did it take the Son of God to die in order to save me, but He willingly did that. That there's such value in the heart of God for sinners like us that He would go to that great length. That God the Father would bankrupt heaven by giving over His very Son, His precious, beloved Son. He would bankrupt heaven in order to have you back. And so if the gospel of grace says both the worst and the best thing about me, then I don't have to fear having control in vulnerable relationships. This person should already know. Look at the cross. They should already know that I don't have it together. And look at the cross. They should already know that I'm valued by God and therefore deserve a relationship of depth and of care. Not only that, but the grace of God The grace of God also restores and establishes dignity. We are given dignity as sons and daughters of God. You see, shame wants to take that dignity, that core piece of you, away. But the grace of God restores it and says, No, I am so loved and cherished by God that God would give me His Son, that He would cleanse me and pardon me. It establishes dignity. It's telling a truer story that has to do with the Son of God, Jesus Christ, dying in my place and saying, this person is of worth because I have saved them. I've gone to that length to save them. And not only that, and this is the most important piece, the grace of God interrupts the narrative of shame. Listen to this from Mark 1 verse 40. And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, 
but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. This leper, who in that time was seen as unclean, who was forced out of the city because of his skin condition and seen as unclean, devoid of the dignity of human relationships and human touch, runs to Jesus, living in a lifelong narrative of I am unclean, I am disgusting, living in that lifelong narrative. And under the weight of that narrative, his knees buckle at the feet of Jesus and says, if you would be willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't just speak a word over him. Jesus doesn't just say, yeah, go ahead, be clean. I heal you of that. Jesus interrupts the narrative of this man's shame by touching him. Jesus reaches out to this man who has forgotten the dignity and warmth of human touch and reaches out and restores that. Jesus interrupts the narrative of our shame. And not only that, but if you see, you see the leper was cast out of the city, but as soon as Jesus heals him, who's the one who's cast out of the city? Jesus. All the more picture that Jesus takes our place and takes our shame. The grace of God interrupts the narrative of shame to give you a better picture that you are not just cleansed, but you are clean. You are not just washed, but you are clean. That's who you are, friends. You are not disgusting. You are not unclean. God the Father has said the most decisive thing about the essence of who you are with the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are justified. You are clean in Jesus. And with that type of narrative, we can truly walk away from the chains of shame, enter into vulnerable relationships with human beings, and most of all with God, and have the healing and freedom that we so long for.